So let us pray. Father, as the scriptures have been read, let your word strike our hearts like a double-edged sword. We pray our ears would be open to hear and our hearts softened to respond. We are reminded these are your words. You spoke them through the Holy Spirit to the writer of the Gospel book. These are words of life, words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of eternal life. We pray for Duncan that your Holy Spirit has guided him in the preparation of the message he is about to bring us. May your Holy Spirit be with him and bless him with the gospel seed to sow in our hearts. Reading from Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The second reading is taken from Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and said to him, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed all around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once Jesus realized the power that had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him all the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jairus, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Delita kumi, meaning, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. 
At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone about him and told them to give her something to eat. Sarah, thanks, Jim. Uh, yes, uh, a long passage, three amazing scenes from Mark's Gospel, but so much in there for us. Today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to try and uh, have a sweep over the whole passage and see what God has to say for us uh, in that. But I'm just going to pray again. Can uh, you join me in praying? Our God, we, we ask that you might... Open the eyes of our hearts more this morning to see both the majesty and power of Jesus and also his goodness and his grace. Please teach us to trust him more deeply, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Australians are known, aren't we, for our distrust of authority. Uh, it's partly our convict heritage, not here in South Australia, I understand. Uh, but from those, for those of us who are from the eastern states... We've got that convict heritage going on. But it's not just that, is it? Uh, there's, it's, it's a situation that seems to be fairly um, broad, spread, broad spread. Recent surveys have shown how trust in institutions like governments, banks, media uh, is at an all-time low. Um, recent royal commissions and things like that have just entrenched that. The fear that our trust will be abused is a is a significant fear, isn't it, across our society? Uh, and that can make us kind of, well, what's the impact of that? It makes you sort of put the barriers up, turn inward, uh, and rather than relying on things out there to start to rely more on yourself. It's very possible, it seems to me, it's very possible that we can carry that same kind of approach over to our relationship with Jesus. Um, Jesus teaches and calls for some difficult things. Uh, we've already seen that as we've looked through Mark's Gospel. Um, last week, if you hear the, the parable of the soils and the other parables, uh, Jesus said that whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. He talks about this judgment at harvest time. Uh, he says in, those, in that passage we looked at last week that the most important, lasting, decisive thing about you is how you respond to his word. Um, next week we're going to look at a really challenging passage where Jesus sort of exposes the human heart. Um, the, and that's going to be, you know, he, he says some pretty confronting things there for us, I think. The week after that... Um, we're going to see Jesus' really strong call for discipleship, to, to follow, taking up our cross and following him. So the question that I want us to reflect on this morning, friends, is that how, how can you trust Jesus when he says these things, when he calls these things of you? How can you trust him? It seems to me you need to know two things. Uh, you need to know, firstly, that he has, he has authority to say them, to ask them. You need to know Jesus' authority. Uh, you need to know that he has power to make these claims. So I think that's the first thing that you need to know, but that's not enough, is it? 
It's not actually, it's not enough. Someone might have authority and power over you, but they might be a tyrant. Um, if you're going to entrust your life to Jesus in the way that's pictured in Mark's gospel, you need to know not only Jesus' power and authority, you need to also know his goodness and his grace. Uh, you need to know that following him is right and true and beautiful uh, and that in his kingdom and under his word, however hard his call might seem, you will find rest for your soul. Well, friends, Mark's account here in the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5 is designed to highlight both of these things. It's designed to highlight both of these things about Jesus. Um, you see, up to this point, uh, Jesus' miracles are certainly there. Um, there's certainly uh, uh, something that is drawing lots of people. But uh, if you've been with us, you'll know that the, the focus of Mark's gospel and the focus of Jesus' ministry has been his teaching, his proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, he didn't want people to be so um, distracted by the miracles that they, they missed that sort of central part of what he had come to do, to bring in and proclaim this new, uh, this kingdom of God. Uh, but now, as you come into this section we're reading today, it really is Jesus' incredible, mighty power that's on full display, isn't it? Uh, as, as you read through this chapter, it's stunning. It's stunning, and it's, it's hard for us to get a sense, I think, at this, as we kind of read through it. It's, it. it's a little hard for us to get a sense of how confronting it would have been for the people who were there and who kind of witnessed it happen. And imagine being in that boat... The end of chapter 4, uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can see the story there. Imagine being in that boat. Jesus has spent the day teaching. This sort of flows straight on from last week's passage. He spent the day teaching, um, uh, speaking from a boat. We heard in chapter 4, he's, he's in the boat speaking to the crowd and uh, it, it's likely that he's just he's exhausted and he tells his disciples to set out to the other side of the lake, of the Lake of Galilee, this massive sort of inland sea. Um, and uh, apparently on the Lake of Galilee, these sudden violent storms were quite, um, were quite common. Uh, uh, it's something to do with the geography of the place. I'm not entirely sure, but apparently it's a common feature of the, this lake, uh, these sudden storms that's, that uh, come up. And we're told in verse 37, a furious squall came up so that the boat was nearly swamped. It's a terrifying situation that the people in the boat are in, right? I'm not much of a nav navigator or a, uh, a boat person. What's the right term for that? <laughs> I, a sailor, thank you. <laughs> uh, but those of us who are... I'm sure you can tell stories of just the really terrifying power of the sea. Um, and being in a small boat on this lake with a furious squall sort of getting whipped up around you, it's a terrifying scene. Uh, but we're told that Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He's, got a, he's sleeping on a cushion in the, in the stern. Maybe he's just exhausted. Maybe there's something else going on. Uh, Jesus' disciples wake him. They rebuke him. They say, don't you care if we drown? The least you could do is to kind of wake up and help bail out the water. You know, come on, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus gets up, we read. But he doesn't help to bail out the water. 
he does something that would have... He does something utterly ridiculous, if you think about it. He gets up and he speaks to the storm around him. He commands the storm. And you can imagine the disciples at that moment, right? What, are you, what on earth are you doing? Um, but in one moment, their frustration is transformed. Storms like this don't, they, they don't just stop instantly. But at the word of Jesus, this storm is instantly, completely, totally calmed. Now, the disciples were people who would have been raised on the book of Psalms, the song book of the Old Testament. And all through the Psalms, the God of Israel, the, the one God who created all things, is the God who has power over the sea. Um, the sea. The sea in the kind of ancient mind, it wasn't a place where you go for a vacation and just to relax, a nice calming place like down here in Encounter Bay. Uh, that wasn't the kind of the, the way in which the sea was pictured. Um, the chaos and terror of the sea had become a great symbol of the threatening forces of chaos and evil. The sea was seen as, sort of symbolically as to represent this, this place of chaos and danger and threat. And it was Israel's God who was the one who could control the sea. Uh, and perhaps I'd, uh, maybe these verses, some of the verses that these men would have been raised on would have come to their mind at this moment. I think certainly later on as they reflected on it, they, they would have. Uh, verses like Psalm 65, uh, which says this, you, uh, Who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. It's a psalm praising the, the, the God of Israel who alone has authority and power over the terror of the sea. The whole earth is filled with awe and the disciples are certainly filled with awe at this moment, right? In fact, we find out in verse 41, they're filled with terror. They were afraid in the middle of the storm. Now that the storm has been calmed, they're more afraid. They're even more afraid. And they ask the question that's been driving the whole first half of Mark's gospel. This question that really is at the heartbeat of Mark 1 to 8, as we saw in the first week. Who is this? Who is this? Even, even the wind and the waves obey him. No one can do that. No one has that kind of power. Who is this? He is doing what only God can do. Well, we'll keep going. We are sort of skating over a little bit, not going into the details too much. But Jesus uh, gets to the other side of the lake eventually, and he, he lands into an area that's Gentile territory, not part of uh, the Jewish territory outside of Israel. And when they get there, they're confronted by a different kind of storm. Right? The, the storm of this one man's tragedy and this, this deeply disturbed and disturbing figure. Uh, a demon-possessed man. He sees them from a distance. He starts bolting towards them. 
uh, in, in his rags with his sores all over his body, chains sort of fa- falling off him as, as they're getting out of the boat. And you can kind of, I mean, if I think of, I think if I was the disciples, I'd be thinking, come on, Jesus, let's get back in the boats. Let's get out of here. He seems to have inhuman strength. Um, he's deranged. He's, he's living among, I mean, he's living among the graves. He spends every night and day crying, crying out, cutting himself with stones. It's just this picture of utter tragedy. Um, In verse 8, we find that Jesus has already, uh, before this man has spoken, Jesus has already taken the initiative and commanded this impure spirit to come out of the man. He knows that what's going on is not... Uh, is, there's something more going on. There's a, there's a deeper, dark spiritual reality at, at work in this man. And he, he commands this unclean spirit to come out. But back in verse 7, uh, in response to Jesus' command, this man falls at his feet and says, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. And you read on it, it turns out there's actually a legion of demons in this guy of evil spirits. Um, The story goes on, and there is so much more to it. But at Jesus' word, at Jesus' word, this man is immediately freed from these impure spirits that had just uh, destroyed his life. And by the end of the story... uh, People are afraid. Uh, They're amazed at what Jesus has done, at the power that he's shown. Again, it's power that only God has. Uh, Power over the unseen forces of darkness. It's Jesus binding up the strong man from chapter 3. Remember that parable he told? Plundering Satan's house, freeing his captives. This incredible authority and power that comes through Jesus' word. Well, they go back across the lake again after this, uh, back into Israelite territory, and another man comes running up to Jesus. Uh, Totally different from the demon-possessed man, a completely different kind of scene, right? He's respectable, he's a synagogue leader, a religious leader of the time, and he's given a name. His name is Jairus. It's another tragic story, though. This time, it's not his own um, personal or in himself. This time, it's his daughter. Uh, She's 12 years old. She's seriously ill. She's about to die. And you can sense he's just as a desperate man, right? You can sense his sorrow. Um, And I, I know that many of us can imagine what a desperate situation this man would have been in. Uh, he, he pleads Jesus to come and heal his daughter, and Jesus goes with him. But here is one of the most shocking things in this whole section, as you keep reading through this, par- this section of Mark. Um, you've got to get the scene in your head right. He's rushing to save a young girl's life. She's on death's door. Uh, Jesus is known as a healer. He's rushing to save this, this girl's life. There's an urgent need. This guy is like, it's, it's urgent. Every second counts. 
for Jesus to get to this girl and heal her before she dies. But then there's this really curious um, incident that happens, right? Jesus gets interrupted. Someone has crept up behind him as the crowd is sort of pressing around and touched his cloak. And in some way, Jesus knows that power has gone out of him. And in verse 30, we're told he stops the crowd. He, he insists that they don't keep going until they found out who's touched him. Now, can you imagine Jairus at this moment? What are you doing, Jesus? My daughter is about to die. And you stop for an anonymous, anonymous person and ask this question, uh, a question that the disciples think is ridiculous. Who touched my cloak? And not only that, this person turns out to be an older woman with a chronic condition. We're going to return to her story um, towards the end. And her situation was tragic. But you can see from Jairus' perspective, she'd had this chronic condition for 12 years. Surely she can wait a few minutes for, his, for a dying girl. It only gets worse, though. Uh, the story plays out, and again, we'll return to this woman, but the delay has been too long. Verse 35, messengers come and tell Jairus it's too late. His daughter has died. But you notice through all of this, friends, and you can sort of feel the just... The frustration, the tragedy that is going on for so many people around Jesus at the moment. You notice through all this, Jesus doesn't get flustered. He's not looking at his watch. He's in complete control. He knows that it's, it's not actually too late for him. It's not too late for him. He knows that for him, even the greatest unstoppable force that no one is powerful enough to overcome... Even death itself. He knows that for him, well, death is just sleep. And so he tells Jairus in verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. He tells the crowd weeping for the young girl, the child's not dead, she's just asleep. Well, they laugh. Again, another ridiculous thing to say, even an offensive thing to say, in given the circumstances. But not if you know who Jesus is. He goes up to the little girl and in verse 41, with a word, he reaches down into death and pulls her back into life. Uh, there are... Um, Accounts in the Old Testament of people who had been raised from death to life, but always by, say, a prophet praying to God for God to do this. Uh, a handful, a small number. But do you notice he, Jesus, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't perform any sort of rituals. He doesn't, he doesn't even pray. He, doesn't, he himself speaks through the power of his own word. And he raises this girl. And like everyone else who encounters the authority and power of Jesus, the people around him are completely astonished. 
Jesus has incredible power. A power that can only be God's power. Power over nature, power over evil forces, power over even sickness and death itself. And if you were there, friends, if you were in that crowd, if you were on that boat, if you were in that upper room, uh, it would not have been a quirky, fun Sunday school story. It would have left you with your jaw on the floor. It would have left you totally in awe, and probably, like the disciples, probably terrified, asking this same question, who is this? These stories show in really dramatic form that Jesus has the power and authority of God because he is God. Um, hear this, these words from the one way that this has been put down through the ages, a really important creed called the Nicene Creed, which describes Jesus as the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. Which means that as we read through Mark's Gospel, as we encounter this person of Jesus, it means that Jesus has the power and authority to rule to set the agenda. And the only right response when he speaks is that of the good soil from last week. Those who hear, who respond, and who let that word produce fruitfulness in their lives, who put into practice what they hear. But the question that I want to just switch slightly to now as we think again about these stories is, how, how could you do that? How could you let down whatever defences that you have built up in order to have this kind of a trust in a person? How could you move past perhaps the ways you've been burnt in the past, the walls you've built around your heart that protect you from getting hurt? Um, and here is the wonderful news of the, this part of Mark's gospel, friends. Uh, it is because of who Jesus is, because he is not only the king with authority, he is the God who is love and whose heart is to restore and lift up and heal and bring grace and peace. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed goes on, that's not all it says about Jesus. It goes on and says, for, for us and for our salvation, this one, this one through whom all things were made, he came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. It's just to make sure everyone's awake. There we go. He came down from heaven for us. <laughs> uh, that's uh, what the, the creed goes on to say, and it, it really is just a, a, an attempt to put into words what is here in Mark's gospel. 
And that the God of the gospel, the one true God that Jesus reveals to us, is not the God of raw power at a distance. He is the God whose mighty power is shown most fully in his wonderful and deep and transforming grace. He's not just powerful, he is good. At each point in these three scenes that we've read through today, at each point Jesus meets people in desperation and responds with powerful grace. He does care if his disciples drown, uh, although he also, you notice his response to the disciples, it is a little, a little bit of a rebuke. They've been with him uh, and they should have seen a bit more clearly who he was, but he wants to teach them to trust him even in the storm. And he does calm the storm. He transforms this demoniac from the most wretched person that you can probably imagine into, do you notice what it says there? Uh, It's this picture of this guy as calm, he's sane, he's clothed, and he's sitting listening to Jesus. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. But I just want to focus, though, on the last scene uh, to see this character of Jesus in real focus as we finish, as we sort of come towards the end today. I just want to focus on that last scene with um, the, the woman who comes and touches Jesus and the, the girl as well. Uh, this woman who, in desperation, touches Jesus' cloak, it's hard to imagine the kind of anguish that she would have been living in um, for a long time. Uh, her chronic bleeding was most likely a menstrual disorder. Uh, which left her not only socially isolated, but sort of spiritually cut off as well from the people. She, would have, she was in a state of constant, ongoing ritual impurity, which would have meant exclusion from the community. Uh, she couldn't have any children, which in that society, it, was not, it wouldn't have only been a personal anguish, but had larger implications for her whole security, Uh, with no children to care for her in her old age. Uh, Not only that, her condition has brought her into extreme poverty. She has spent everything she had on doctors. But instead of getting better, she just gets worse and worse and worse. So it's not surprising, isn't it? You notice little details in these stories that Mark tells. Uh, She sort of comes up behind Jesus. You can see this, this woman almost creeping up, um, not wanting any attention drawn to her, um, deeply aware of her own shame um, or what she feels to be her shame. She creeps up behind Jesus. She doesn't want anyone to notice her. But she she trusts, she believes that Jesus can help. Notice what she says. She doesn't say, oh, look, I'll, you know, I'll just give it a crack and see how it goes. I'll just go up and, you know, can't hurt to try and touch Jesus. No, she says, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. I will. And, and so in the sort of bustle of the crowd going to heal Jairus' daughter, she manages to kind of push through and press, somehow get her hand to Jesus' cloak and Instantly, she knows that this affliction that she's had for 12 years is instantly, she's been freed from, from this suffering. 
Now, we wouldn't know about this at all. We wouldn't know that this had happened at all if it wasn't for what happened next. Uh, it's this really private and hidden act. It's sort of um, intimate in a way. But Jesus knows that something's happened. Um, in some way, he knows that power has gone out of him and he stops the crowd and asks, as we've already seen, what seems to be a really ridiculous question. Who touched my clothes? <laughs> this massive crowd sort of pressing around Jesus, walking to Jairus's house. Uh, what kind of a question is that? Um, but, but Jesus insists. He stops. He keeps looking around. We don't know how long for. He has something in mind, something important. And, and, and perhaps after there's been that kind of awkward silence that's gone on for a long time, the, the woman knows that she can't sort of get away from this. Uh, when it comes clear that he's not going to, Jesus isn't going to give up, uh, you hear the rustling of a woman, this nameless woman, stepping forward and falling at Jesus' feet. She knows Jesus is talking about her. She knows uh, that his question is not a ridiculous one. She knows what's happened, and she's terrified too. Notice that? She's trembling with fear. Like the disciples, I think she's more afraid after the miracle than before. Perhaps she's worried Jesus will rebuke her and take back the healing. Uh, maybe, she's asked, she, maybe she's just confronted with the same question the disciples had. Who is this man? Uh, then she, she just spills the whole story. She doesn't hold anything back. Um, she tells the whole truth. Now, friends, why does Jesus do this? Uh, he, he could have just let it slide. Uh, the woman, would have, woman probably would have been happy with that, to just kind of go on her way, healed, and... Um, living a, a changed life from that point. Jairus certainly would have been far less anxious standing there waiting for Jesus to do this. And maybe Jesus could have reached his daughter in time if he hadn't stopped for this woman. Why does Jesus stop and insist on this interaction with this woman, on really sort of exposing her and what she's done? Uh, she was uh, someone no one wanted to know, no one wanted to be near or talk to. But Jesus, Jesus loves her. Uh, Jesus has grace in his heart towards this woman, and specifically, he wants to teach. He wants. He he knows he needs to take this opportunity to to teach her the real nature of what's happened. Uh, he knows there's a danger that she'll go away and somehow have this kind of magical idea in her mind that somehow it's uh, Jesus' clothes have been infused with this um, healing magic and if only like it's the actual clothes that have healed her or something like that. She, uh, some superstitious aura. Uh, this isn't magic what has happened to this lady. It is the purposeful work of the creator God through his son 
knitting back together his broken creation. And Jesus says to her, it is her faith that has healed her. Her trust in the person of Jesus, not in a kind of superstitious magical aura. And so Jesus lifts this broken woman up. He dignifies her. Do you notice that beautiful way he relates to her? Calls her daughter. He lifts her up and says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. He knows she's afraid, but she doesn't need to be. Not if her faith is in Jesus. And he says, Go in peace. Let go of your fear, go in peace, and be freed from your suffering. It's the same thing in a sort of different version of the same thing Jesus has already said as we've sort of looked through these stories. It's a different version of the same thing Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 4. As I said, in a way that's kind of a rebuke, he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? There's a hint of a kind of rebuke there in Jesus' words. Uh, but it's also an invitation to them. Don't be afraid. Uh, trust me. And it's the same thing he says to Jairus as you keep reading in verse 36. Once word has come about his daughter's death. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Trust me. That's what Jesus is saying. If you really knew who I am. If you really knew who I am, then you would know that you did not have need to fear. You would know, Jairus, that it's not too late for your little girl. And so Jesus goes up to the child and speaks to the dead girl lying there. He uses this phrase. Uh, it was a phrase that um, at the time was like a common sort of pet name for a parent to give their child. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase of intimacy and tenderness. tenderness. Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up, or maybe better for us. Come on, sweetie, up you get. Uh, he's so tender with this little girl. And her parents are overcome, and don't you just love that at the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus reminds them, oh, by the way, make sure she has some food. <laughs> she really has come back to life. Well, there's, as I have said a couple of times, there's lots in here and lots that we can't cover. But do you see the sweep of these stories? Jesus is the one who brings grace and restoration and peace with him as he, wherever he goes. Uh, that need, not, not for everyone, you notice, the unclean spirits get no peace. And we already know that Jesus is more than ready to confront the proud, hard-hearted people around him, especially the religious leaders who don't recognise him. But what these accounts that Mark has put together here highlight for us is that at its heart, Jesus' kingdom is one of grace and peace. The sea is quieted. The possessed man is liberated. The woman is healed. The girl is raised.
It's no wonder, I think, that one of the Apostle Paul's favourite ways to open his letter was with the phrase, the greeting, grace and peace to you. Uh, that is what Jesus accomplished at the cross. The full expression of his grace, of his compassion on needy, desperate people by dying in their place to bring them peace, lasting peace and life. That peace and life is experienced to a certain degree now, but the certain and promised future of Jesus' kingdom is of complete, unending grace and peace. Um, these stories, the stories here in this part of Mark's gospel, these accounts of Jesus' great miraculous works, um, one really, I think, a really helpful way to think about them is that they're like matches that have been struck, that flare up with a really bright light for a short time. They burn brightly for a moment. But in the bigger picture of Mark's gospel, the bigger picture of the Bible's whole story, Jesus has come to do something far bigger, actually, than just calm one storm, to free one man, to heal one woman and raise one girl, who would then grow old and face death again. See, the, the brief but spectacular light of these miracles is meant not actually to draw the focus to themselves, first of all. It's meant to point us to the eternal and great light of Jesus' kingdom, uh, which is now ours by faith and will be one day ours by sight. They're foretastes of the coming day, a foretaste of when his kingdom, as we saw last week, that is hidden in this really profound way, hidden for now, will be the great tree that everyone can see on the last day, will be revealed for what it is, uh, of the pointers towards the day when Jesus will return in glory. There's this great passage in Revelation uh, chapter 15 which depicts this. And it says the sea will be like glass. This, the sea will be glass. All chaos and evil, every force of Satan will be finally judged and brought to nothing. Uh, where there will be later in the book of Revelation, which pictures this great ending to the story, there will be no more crying. Um, no more people outside um, Jairus's house weeping. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more sickness, no, no more women coming to Jesus in this state. Not even any death. Uh, when from one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the Romans, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, where the whole world will be renewed in life, and peace. And when we will live forever in the city where the glory of God is our light. See, these matches that are struck here are signs that are pointing us towards that far greater light. Uh, they're here to, to encourage you, to enable you in the midst of whatever storm or evil 
or sickness or grief you are facing. To hear and receive and rest in and let produce fruit within you Jesus' word to you to not be afraid but to believe. We pray that he might do that in us now. Let's pray. Thank you, our God. We thank you for these wonderful lights that shine so brightly of Jesus' power, his majesty, and also his goodness and grace. We thank you that they point us towards your eternal kingdom. And we thank you for the promise that in your kingdom of grace, uh, there will be no more of these things that cause so much um, anguish to us in this age. We pray, Lord, that you might teach us more and more um, not to fear. Um, help us to see and trust and know Jesus for who he is. Uh, help us to live our lives dependent on him, relying on him, um, knowing that if he's in our boat, we can smile at the storm. And so we pray that you might give us that grace to trust him every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.